All right, well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Sorry, we're having a technical difficulty. Our uh, spotlight is not working, so hopefully you can see okay. Um, and you get to sit under some fluorescent lights this morning, which is always fun. So, hey, welcome to Sojourn. If this is your first time here, we're grateful to gather with you this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as we've said all this morning, it is just good to gather together as God's people, as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And whether you know Christ or you don't know Christ, we're grateful that God has brought you to be here today. Because we really do believe that as we sit together, as we sing together, as we read God's word, as we hear God's word preached, that God will use that in our life in this moment and as we go forward. We're going to preach from the Bible this morning as we do every week. So if you need, uh, need a Bible to look at, we just raise your hand and somebody will bring a Bible around to you uh, so that you can read along with us this morning and be able to track with us. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Uh, so we're going through a lot of different uh, scripture. And so I want you to be able to read along with us today. You know, a common characteristic that I think pretty much every person has, no matter what your background is, what your story is, is that all of us long for and like to experience glorious things. And it may be different for different people. Maybe for you, it's a kind of nature kind of things. You, you love to see the sunrise in the morning. I don't like to get up early, so that's not me. So maybe if that's you, you like to see the sun set in the evening and see how it paints the sky with beautiful colors. Or maybe it's seeing something like a majestic mountain, more like the hills of the Blue Ridge. Maybe not the mountains of the Blue Ridge, but the hills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Or Mount Rainier in Washington. Or maybe you've been out to Colorado and seen some of the 14ers out there and just see so many mountains that are over 14,000 feet tall. Maybe for you, it's seeing your child being born holding him or her for the first time in your arms. Maybe for you it isn't nature. Maybe it's something more like a sporting event, that you sit in a stadium with a bunch of fans just like yourself, screaming in solidarity for your team to win. Man, we all long for exhilaration. We long to see something magnificent. And I think we come by it honestly. I think it's something that's been weaved into us by our Creator, who is glorious, And whose creation magnifies and displays and reflects that glory. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's what creation does. It reflects the glory of God. We should be in awe when we look around us. And on the heels of one of the most ridiculous, most scandalous, most outrageous acts of rebellion that we looked at last week as the people of God, the people of Israel created a golden calf and bowed down and worshiped it instead of God. And in turn, we see God's grace in that as he doesn't destroy all of them. On the heels of that, Moses longed for something. He longed for someone glorious And in this longing, Moses doesn't get exactly what he wants, but he gets way more than he expects. What we see in our text today is crucial for you and for me because of the transforming power it contains. A personal experience that Moses has and is good for the people of Israel. It has implications for the people of Israel, but it has a relevant reality for your life and for my life today. This personal experience that Moses has with God that we're going to look at. So I'm excited to get into this story, to jump into this today, because it's a, it's a powerful story. It's an amazing story to see what God gives to Moses. So let's spend some time praying before we open up the word that, that God would give us ears to hear this morning. That he'd give us eyes to see this morning. That today our lives might be impacted and changed. Now in this moment, but forever as we go forward and sit under God's word this morning. So let's pray together.
Father, we are grateful for our time. We are grateful for your word that you give us. Lord, I thank you that we could sing of your truth this morning, that we could sing words from your scripture, that we could hear words from your scripture and be reminded of your grace, be reminded of who you are. And as we jump into the text this morning, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to be in awe of you. May what we hear this morning not be old news. May it not be just something that's kind of in one ear and out the other. Lord, would you give us ears to hear it this morning? Would you help us this morning to see you, to savor you, to be in awe of who you are, and that by doing that, you would transform our lives for your glory and for our good. So we give this time to you. We pray for your spirit to work, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to jump into the story here, starting in verse 12. This is what Exodus 33 says. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, being God, says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We're going to be in Exodus 33 and 34 this morning. And what we see in this text is it's a, it's a building story, a climaxing narrative that occurs mainly in this dialogue, this interaction between Moses and God. We're kind of like an audience maybe at the theater that's seeing a, a play unfold before us and we get to peek into it. We get to look into it to see what's happening here. And it's a gift of grace to us because we can learn so much from it. As we saw last week, as Alan preached last week, out of Exodus chapter 32, God, in an insane display of grace, does not completely destroy his people after a crazy thing of false worship, of bowing down to an idol instead of to God. It's outright rebellion. And so God doesn't destroy his people in that moment. He extends grace to them because Moses mediates for them. But while he doesn't do that, it's not all good news. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 33. At the beginning of Exodus 33, God says to Moses, you will continue to go to the promised land, but I am not going to go with you any longer. I'll send an angel with you instead of myself to go with you. But Moses doesn't like that answer from God. He presses God for more. As we saw in the text we just read, Moses pleads with God on the basis of who he knows God to be. 
He asks God to show him his ways, to lead them. Moses is basically saying, you, you are Lord, you are master, you are God. I can't do this. We can't do this if you don't go with us. If we're not under your lordship, God, we will die out here. I've received your grace, God. You've showed your grace to your people, not because we deserved it, but because that is who you are. So please, Lord, continue to be gracious to us. Don't abandon us now. Don't leave us now. Consider your people. I know you're faithful to your plans and your people, is Moses' plea. See, as we said before, Moses is a mediator for Israel, but he's also, I'm sorry, he's a redeemer for his people, but he's also a mediator. He represents God to the people and the people to God. And so God is faithful. He responds to Moses in faithfulness. But in a way that continues to press back on Moses, he wants to see, is Moses really going to mediate for his people? In verse 14, God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, something interesting here is that we lose something in our English translation here. The Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew and we've translated it into English. Well, this is a place that we kind of miss a bit of nuance here. What this literally says in the Hebrew is my presence will go with you, Moses, singular. I will give you, Moses, singular, rest. God's essentially saying, okay, I will go with you, but not everyone else. So Moses isn't satisfied. That's why he says in verses 15 and 16, if your presence will not go, the ESV doesn't do a good job here. It says with me, with me is not in the Hebrew. So what it says here is if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now, why is this such a big deal for Moses? I mean, especially in light of what's just happened. Moses wasn't a part of the false worship. Moses didn't bow down to the golden calf. It's all these other people. So why does Moses press God on this? Why is he not just satisfied that God would even just go with him, especially in light of what has just occurred? Because Moses understands that fellowship with God is the very heart of his covenant with them. They cannot exist apart from his presence. He will be their God and they will be his people. It would be like getting married, making a covenant commitment to your husband or to your wife, but never living in the same place, never being present with them. That's not a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is one that exists when you exist with someone. God's presence is essential to God's promises. He must go with them. Man, so don't we sometimes kind of see it backwards though? We like the promises of God, but we don't care much for his presence in our life. See, Moses is saying, I don't want to take another step with these two million people. I don't want to go another inch with these two million people, God, if you don't go with us. We are desperate for your presence. And God agrees with Moses. Verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I do know you by name. God responds in grace to Moses because that's who God is. He continues to be faithful to his plans and his people. That's a theme that we've seen all throughout the book of Genesis, all throughout the book of Exodus. God is faithful to his plans and to his people, even in the midst of their faithlessness. Now, you'd think that'd be enough. Moses has pressed God. He's asked God for more, but Moses still wants something a little bit more from God. And so in response to God's grace, 
through the promise of his covenant presence, presence, Moses makes another request. Verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. So the drama continues to unfold. And we have to ask the question, what is Moses really asking for here? I mean, he's already seen the bush on fire, but not consumed. He's seen all the plagues that God has leveled on the Egyptian people. He's seen the Red Sea part. He's been up on the mountain. He's seen the cloud by day, the fire by night, the thunder, the lightning. He has seen a display of God's glory. So what is he asking God for here? Well, it's not so much that he's asking to see his glory for the first time. What he's asking is, is to have a fuller knowledge of his covenant Lord by experiencing more of his covenant presence. Simply put, Moses just wants to know God more. He longs for that. So how will God respond to this? Does his patience wear thin with Moses? Like, really, you're going to ask for something else? No, God once again responds in grace. Verses 19 through 23. God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God uses this language of a human appearance in order to help Moses understand what's going to take place here. He tells Moses that he's not going to give him exactly what he wants, but way more than he expects. He will pass before him. He will proclaim his name and who he is. But Moses is not able to see God face to face because he would die if he did that. God is completely and perfectly holy and Moses is not. And so by being in the presence of holy God as an unholy person, he would be destroyed. But God is gracious. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, he says. He will allow Moses to see the back of him as he passes by. It's, it's kind of like seeing the contrail of his glory. The remnants of his glory as a plane flies over in the air. You can look up and even if you don't see the plane, you can say a plane has passed by here. I see this contrail in the sky. That's what God's saying. I'm going to let you see the contrail of my glory. It's his grace to him to preserve him, to allow him to see this and participate in this. But in the midst of this, God says, before you do that, before I allow you to even see the the backside of my glory, the contrail of my glory, you need to get ready. You need to prepare for this. In chapter 34, verses 1 through 3, the Lord says this to Moses. Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. See, what God is stating to Moses is, when you come up here, when I display more glory to you, I'm going to renew my covenant that has been broken by my people. In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses comes down off the mountain, he's carrying these tablets of the law written on them. And when he sees what the people have done, that they're out, they're up, they're participating in sin, they are worshiping a false idol, he throws these tablets to the ground and shatters them. It's not so much in a fit of rage as it is a symbol of the covenant being broken by God's people. They they signify a broken relationship. 
And so what God is saying here is that he is willing to literally pick up the pieces of this broken relationship and restore what has been broken. And this tells us something about our God. He is a restoring God. Do you need restoration in your life today? Man, God wants to restore the brokenness of your life. That is who God is. And we see later on in verses, tw- ten, starting in verse 10 through 28, what God does to restore this is he gives him the law again. He gives him the law again. As Alan said two weeks ago, why does he do this? It's because living under the lordship of God is better than living outside of it. All of his commands are for your joy. God says, I love you enough to keep you under my lordship. That's God's grace. His restoring grace. Verses 4 through 5, Moses listens. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Man, Moses is eager. Probably didn't sleep much that night. You ever had a moment like that? Maybe it was the day before you got married. Just like, man, I, I can't really get any rest. I'm excited about tomorrow. Maybe it was before you moved off to college. Maybe it's before you started a new job or we're about to go on some grand adventure. You just, you have restless sleep. You're, you're just anticipating, longing for what's to come. And so as the first rays of light from the sun peek over the horizon, Moses is up and at him. And he's going up that mountain. He wants to experience and see the glory of God revealed. But what we see in the text, what it says is that Yahweh, the Lord, descends in the cloud and stood with them and proclaimed his name. Even as Moses goes up a mountain, God must still come down to him. This is a picture of God condescending to people. That in and of itself is absolutely amazing grace. God is not obligated to interact with his people in this way. Every time God interacts with us, he must condescend because he is majestic. He is holy. He is transcendent. But here we see a picture of God's eminence as he comes to stand with Moses. Then the moment moment that Moses has been longing for comes. Hiding in the cleft of a rock, Yahweh passes by. Verses 6 and 7. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you see what's going on here? Moses says, I want to see your glory. But what we see here and what's described here is not what Moses saw, but what Moses heard. As he passes by, God reveals his glory to Moses, but he does it mainly, mainly through preaching a sermon of his attributes. God could do all kinds of things to display his glory. The God of all creation, what he does to choose to reveal his glory to Moses is to talk to speak a word, to tell Moses who he is. Maybe at this point it's a good, good time to ask a question. What is the glory of God? What does it mean when we say the glory of God? As one pastor and commentator puts it, defines it, he says it's the weightiness of being, the totality of his perfections. It's the weightiness of God. 
God himself says, when Moses says, will you show me his glory? His response is, all my goodness will pass before you. That's what it means to see God's glory. That's what glory is. God's glory consists in the revelation of his goodness, the proclamation of his name. And his name is not just a title. It's not just a title. It represents his entire being. That he is the God of creation and redemption. He's the God who makes people and he's the God who saves people. This is who God is. This instant right, instance right here, how God reveals himself right here, is repeated over and over and over again in the scriptures. Going back to this point, as if we ask the question, well, who is God? What is he really like? It's to say, he's spoken it to us. He's told us who he is. And what does he say? Who is Yahweh? He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he is just, not clearing the guilty. This is the definition of God's glory. See, Moses said, show me your glory. And God revealed it to him by proclaiming who he is. And man, let's not forget when this comes in the scriptures. This is immediately on the heels of the people bowing down to a false idol. See, if you're familiar with these stories at all, I think oftentimes if you heard the story of the golden calf before, maybe you've heard this story before. But sometimes we forget that they happen right next to each other. There's been gross sin, but now we see an amazing display of grace as God reveals himself as a God of grace. See, when God's glory through his mercy and justice is revealed to Moses, Moses responds as all of us should respond. He falls on his face and he worships. Verse 8 says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. See, Moses gets it. He got less than he wanted, but way more than he expected. He gets who God is and what that means for Israel. Listen to what he says in verse 9. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. So I think Moses is basically saying, God, I wanted you to go with us. I wanted you to not abandon us in light of our sin and rebellion. But now I get it. We need you to go with us precisely because we are sinful and rebellious. We need your grace. We are desperate for your grace. We are desperate for your covenant presence. We are desperate for your glory. We are wholly dependent on you because of who you are, because you are the glorious one. This is the God that Moses needs. This is the God that Israel needs. And this is the God that you need. This is the God that I need. See, God's glory is defined here, but God's glory also defines you. And it defines you in two ways. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we fall short of God's glory, it means we fall short of his perfect standard, which he is the very definition of. We are image bearers. We bear the image of God, but we have hijacked that. We seek to live for our own glory, to make a name for ourselves. We become glory stealers instead of glory advancers. And we've seen that all throughout Genesis and Exodus. What this deserves is the justice of God. We, we deserve the wrath of God because of that. So we are defined by God's glory. 
We're defined by the weightiness of his being, the totality of his perfections, because we've rebelled against it. We've sought to steal it for ourselves, worshiping creation instead of the creator. This is what Israel did with the golden calf. They exchanged the glory of God for a lie. It's what you do. It's what I do. When anytime we worship anything and everything except God, when we put our hope in anything else, we exchange the glory of God for a lie. But God's glory also defines you because it's by God's glory that we have the means of freedom from sin and death. In John chapter 1, we read early part of this, the later on in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, this word, this word that is God. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, we have to understand that God's glory is revealed most fully in and through his son, who's the very embodiment of his words. He spoke to Moses on this mountain. It's through Jesus that God is merciful and gracious. It's through Jesus that God is slow to anger. It's through Jesus that God is abounding in steadfast love. It's through Jesus that God is able to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's through Jesus that God is just, not clearing the guilty. And he does this through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. Just like God came down to Moses as Moses went up to the mountain, Christ has come down to you as one of us to reveal God's glory to us. In other words, to know Jesus is to know the glory of God. Just like with Moses in Israel, though, God does not reveal his glory in spite of our sin and rebellion. He doesn't do it in spite of our sin and rebellion. He reveals his glory in this way precisely because of our sin and rebellion. It's why Christ had to die. There's no way for us to stand in the presence of holy God now or in eternity apart from Christ bearing the righteous wrath of God on his back for you and for me as a substitute. He didn't disregard our rebellion. He confronted it head on. See, the justice of God and the mercy of God meet at the cross of Christ. Do we understand there is no mercy, there is no grace if there's no justice? If God doesn't punish sin, if God doesn't deal with the unholiness and rebellion of humanity, there can be no grace. But he pours out his grace through Christ. His full attributes and characteristics are made fully manifest in and through Jesus. So if you are outside of the cross, if you don't know Christ, then you rightly receive the justice of God. It's only at the cross that mercy is given. It's only at the cross that grace is poured out. God's glory defines who you are. It defines who you are. The covenant keeping God is your only hope in life, in death, for change, for effectiveness, in being a disciple who makes disciples because he is gracious, merciful, loving, patient, and forgiving. God's glory defines you because apart from it, you would remain dead in your sin. Hear me on this. If you don't get anything else, if you miss everything else, at least pay attention to this. Because of this truth, what this means is you are not defined by where you live. You are not defined by what you do. You are not defined by your marital status. 
You are not defined by the behavior of your kids, whether good or bad. You are not defined by your religious activity. You are not defined by your good works. You are not defined by how much theology you know. You are not defined by how much you have or don't have. You are not defined by your sexual orientation. You are not defined by your sin. As one of my pastor friends says, you are defined by who you belong to. And because of the glory of God made manifest in the person and the work of Christ, you can become a child of God. If you are in Christ, you belong to him. And that's who you're defined by now. That's where your identity is now. It's not in anything else but him as the glory of God has been made manifest and come to be displayed in and affect your life. And because he is glorious, because Christ is glorious, we too, if we know Christ, are being transformed to be glorious as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul refers to this instance that we see in Exodus chapter 34. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. He says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because of our sin, we fall short of God's glory. But because of Christ, we are set free from our sin and experience God's glory. And because we experience God's glory, we are now being transformed by it. Being restored to become like Christ from one degree of glory to another. This is where restoration takes place. This is where transformation takes place. It happens because of Christ. Man, this is an amazing text. This is exciting. I love 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. It's a hope-filled text. God is going to transform you if you know Jesus. It's exhilarating to think about beholding the glory of the Lord like Moses. To just sit back and be like, man, that's crazy to be able to see and do something like that. Man, sometimes in the day-to-day of life, it just doesn't seem like that's true. It doesn't even seem like it's possible. Maybe it doesn't seem like you're being transformed. Maybe you don't seem to be beholding the glory of God like this. In the midst of the day-to-day of life, no matter what your day consists of, whether you work in the marketplace or, or at home, stay at home and work at home, or you're in the classroom, we can find ourselves tending towards a few things. Maybe it's despair. You think I'm never going to change. I'll always struggle with this. God doesn't care. Maybe it's disillusionment. You feel beat down, experiencing suffering or persecution. You don't think it'll ever get better, and so you just seek to give up. Maybe for some of us, maybe even most of us, it's just detachment. We've become so distracted and captivated with the things of the world. We're distracted with all that's going on in our life, and all of a sudden we look up and we just feel dry spiritually. Things aren't exciting. Life is boring. Life is just ordinary. Maybe for some of you, life is hard. Relationships are difficult. Work seems pointless sometimes. And we look at a story like Moses in Exodus chapter 34, and we just say, man, God, would you just do something like that for me? If you would just reveal yourself to me in this way, if I could just have an experience like Moses, just see the contrail of your glory like Moses, then, then my spiritual life would be fervent. I'd live my life for you. I would want to follow you, but I just feel like everything's just blah. But Sojourn, don't you see? 
Don't you see? And when we learn, we learn from this that Moses has, has to put a veil over his face at the end of chapter 34 because the glory he experiences makes his face radiant, but it's fading. Sojourn, don't you see that while the glory of Moses fades, God has displayed his unfading glory in and through Jesus. Man, you and I, we don't need to sing or say, show me your glory, God. We need to look to Christ. That's where we see the glory of God. Don't sit in your seat, your car on the way to work or your couch in the morning and just say, God, would you just show me your glory? Because God has shown it to you already. And his name is Jesus. God's revealed revealed himself to Moses on the mountain and Moses mediated this to his people. But one who is greater than Moses has come with a surpassing and permanent glory. Look to him. That's what Paul's saying. When we behold the glory of the Lord that comes in and through Christ, our lives can never be the same. It'll fundamentally change you. It'll eternally change you. It's the only thing that can. So if you want to experience freedom, look to Christ. If you want to experience life, look to Christ. If you want to experience redemption, look to Christ. If you want to experience restoration, look to Christ. If you want to experience transformation, look to Christ. If you want to experience joy, look to Christ. If you want to experience peace, look to Christ. If you want to experience contentment, look to Christ. If you want to display the radiance of God's glory to the world, look to Christ. It's all in Christ and him alone. And the crazy thing about this is it's for all of us. Moses was the only one that got to go up on the mountain. You notice God said, don't let anyone else come up here. Keep the animals away even. But see, for you and for me, because of what Christ has done for us, it's not just for a subset. It's not just for a special leader. It's not for a super spiritual person. All people, all people can behold the glory of God in Christ. That is grace upon grace poured out for you. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. It doesn't doesn't matter what's happened in your past. Christ has come to you. We should be blown away by that, that we can behold the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, just like Moses did on the mountain. But the struggle in life is not that life is mundane. It's not that it's unexciting, not even that it's difficult. See, I think the reality for most of us is that we're just easily satisfied with lesser things. We seek after false glory offered to us in and through the world, whether in people or things. We hear about beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, and we think, that's hard. I want to pursue the easier path. I think I can find glory over here. It reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote that we've read before at Sojourn, but it's worth reading again. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. My family and I just went to Myrtle Beach a few weeks ago. We went with my, the rest of my family, and we had a, a great location. We're right on the beach, ocean front. You can go out on the balcony and hear the waves, see the waves. You can walk quickly down to the beach. But how ridiculous would it be for me to drive seven hours to Myrtle Beach, 
unpack everything, get in my hotel room, and spend a week watching the ocean on a TV screen. I mean, that'd be ridiculous if I came back and said, yeah, I had a great vacation. I sat in my room the whole week, and man, I I had a great view of the ocean on a 46-inch TV screen. It was awesome. I mean, you think that's ridiculous that I couldn't just go outside. Something's right out the door for me to experience, to be in, to enjoy. I think that's what a lot of us do in our relationship with God. The reality is, for many of us, we know the joy of a holiday at the sea, but we think it's too hard to get there. And so we're satisfied with something lesser. And instead of experiencing transformation, we experience stagnation. And at some level, we've grown to be okay with that. Man, there's something very wrong with that. We long for glory, but we don't run to the glorious one. Because of the fleeting pleasures of sin, because of the laziness of our flesh, because of the distractions of our world. But listen to this sojourn. The beauty of grace and glory is that Christ has come to you. He says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. He's not far off. He's near to you. He has come to you to be with you. And now he gives us his spirit to walk with us, to fill us, that we might know him and walk closely with him. So don't look for satisfying glory in anything else or anyone else. Look to Christ. When we find ourselves in the mundane parts of life or difficult parts of life and we start seeing ourselves drifting towards despair or detachment or disillusionment, the solution is always the same, beholding the glory of God in Christ our Savior. But man, too often we spend so much time looking at ourselves instead of looking to the one who's glorious. It's by being with Jesus that we're made like him. So my question for you this morning is, are you seeking him? Are are you seeking Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you savoring Jesus? Are you shining brightly for Jesus? The gospel, the reality that Christ lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross as a substitute for you, for the sin that you've committed, not any that he'd committed. And was raised again from the dead. The gospel is what brings you into God's presence. Not just in eternity but right now. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 say this. For we do not have a high priest. Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let's come into God's presence because of what Christ has done for us. For what reason? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is your hope this morning. It's not show me your glory. It's Father, help me to look to Christ to behold your glory today, right now, to remember who I am, to remember whose I am. What if we started every day like Moses started that day as he headed up to Sinai? With eager anticipation To to gaze on the glory of the Lord, we rose early to seek and savor and soak in the beauty of our risen King. How would that change your day? How would that change your life? How would that change the lives of those you interact with? Man, I know it makes a big difference for me. When I eagerly seek the Lord through his word and through prayer, my perspective changes. It changes for my day, for my whole life, for the circumstances I'm in, meetings that I might have, interactions with my family, people all around me. Everything looks different. Not easier, but different. 
When I wash my mind and my heart with the word of God, when I set my gaze on Jesus and not on myself, it changes everything. It helps me to make no provision for my flesh, but to put on Christ because I'm reminded that Jesus is glorious and following him is better. It helps me to consider the needs of others as more important than my own because it reminds me that Jesus is glorious and following him is better It helps me to put to death what is evil in me because I'm reminded that Jesus is glorious and following him is better. It helps me to love my neighbors and those who persecute me because I'm reminded that Jesus is glorious and following him is better. It reminds me that this world is passing away along with its fleeting pleasures because in it I am reminded that Jesus is glorious and following him is better. It reminds me that sin has no dominion or power over me and that I've been set free because I am reminded that Jesus is glorious and following him is better. See, when you and I gaze on the glory of the Lord in and through Christ, we too respond like Moses did. We respond in worship because we are reminded of how desperate we are for God's grace. Desperate for him to go with us because we are sinful and rebellious. God's presence is still essential to God's promises. And from beginning to end, it's in Christ. He saves you and he sustains you. So look to him. This is the God that Israel needed. And this is the God that you need. So do you know him? Are you looking to him? Are you seeking to be satisfied in Christ and him alone? Turn away this morning from pursuing hope and salvation and anything else. Turn away this morning from sin and turn to Christ in faith. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. You need to know that you are dead in your sin, but Christ gives you life because he went to a cross and he died for you and was raised again. So trust in him today so that you might be forgiven and made new if you've never done that before. And true faith is not self-derived. It's not mustered up. It's set on Christ and who he is. It's trust in the one who alone is trustworthy. It's faith in the one who alone is faithful. So place your faith in him today for the first time, but place your faith in him every day going forward. You never move on from Jesus. See, often God gives us less than we want, but way more than we expect. Through Christ, he gives us himself and he promises He promises to you, if you're in Christ, that he is going to change you and transform you for his glory and for your good from one degree to another. You cannot be redeemed apart from the redeeming work of Christ. You cannot be restored apart from the restoring work of Christ. You cannot be transformed apart from the transforming work of Christ. And you cannot be a radiant person apart from the radiant glory of Christ. Sojourn, look to Jesus today. Look to him tomorrow. Look to him the day after tomorrow. Look to him forever. For in seeing him, you will be made like him. And in being made like him, you will shine brightly for him to the world around us with the radiant glory of our God and King who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Psalm 103 says this, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord, Yahweh, shows compassion to those who fear him. As we come to the table this morning, let's remember who our God is and what he's done for us. Let's gaze on our Redeemer who came to seek and to save the lost. Christ gave himself for you. Christ shed his blood for you. You were blind, but now you can see. And in seeing, you can continue to behold the glory of God in Christ. Let's rejoice today that we no longer have to long for glory. Let's rejoice today that we have experienced it. So come forward, eat the bread, drink the cup, and look to Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I would just ask you just to remain in your seat Don't come forward to take the bread and the cup because it doesn't really mean anything for you. The reason we do this is to proclaim to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters around us, and to our world that Jesus is Lord, that we are desperate for his grace, that we understand that we're dead in our sin apart from what he's done for us. And so if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, we don't want you to come forward to take the bread and the cup. We want you to take Christ today. So just stay in your seat. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Call out on the name of Jesus and ask God to save you and transform you today. If you have questions about what it means to know and follow Jesus, please come talk to me afterwards or any of our other leaders. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. That's why this church is here. It's because we want you to know and experience the glory of God in Christ. Those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are blown away that you, the God of all creation, who's existed for all eternity, would choose to create us, would choose to redeem us, even in spite of our sin, even in the fact of that, that you don't just ignore that, Lord. You confront it head on. You sent your son to die for us. You sent your son to rescue us. And Lord, in that, we get to experience what Moses experienced. We get to experience the glory of God, knowing and realizing that it's only in Christ that we experience your grace and your mercy, your steadfast love and faithfulness, your patience with us. So, Lord, I pray that as we go out from this place today, as we enter into the mundane reality of life, just the ordinary things that we have to do, going to work, mowing the grass, taking out the trash, playing with our kids, interacting with our friends, eating food, that we wouldn't disconnect any of that from living in the reality of your glory. Father, continue to blow us away as we set our gaze on Jesus. I pray that none of us here would tend towards despair or disillusionment or detachment, Lord. And if we're in that place right now, would you shake us out of that and help us to shift our gaze off of ourselves and onto the glorious one, Christ, your son. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you are continued, that you continue to be faithful and patient with us. Lord, for those that are here this morning that are hard-hearted against you, Lord, I pray you'd soften their hearts today that they would experience your patience and long-suffering and that you would bring them to a place of repentance today so they might experience your grace and transformation. Lord, help us to be a hopeful people that realize and really believe and trust in the fact that you are transforming us from one degree of glory to another. 
not always fast as we want or think should happen, but you're faithful, God. So help us to trust in your faithfulness and keep our eyes on Jesus today. And Lord, I pray that we'd go out of here reflecting the radiance of your glory to the world around us. Lord, as we behold you, may we display it so that you might call others to yourself as the words of your grace come out of our mouths. Lord, we thank you for your love and your faithfulness to us even when we are not faithful. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.